Hello, welcome to Dust Busters, your inseparable companion podcast to his Dark Materials. I'm Jake Cunningham, and the original Dark Materials novels are my favourite books. And I'm Louisa Maycock. Jake and I have been together for almost a decade, and I have never read a single one of these books. We're supported by Penguin Random House, the publishers of Philip Pullman's original trilogy. If you like them, are just discovering them, or want to skip ahead and see even more of Lyra's world, The Book of Dust, The Secret Commonwealth is out now. It's set after the Dark Materials trilogy and is available in hardback, ebook, and audio, which is read by Michael Sheen. This week, we are very excited as Louis and I have enacted an ancient rite. We have offered studious Dark Material academic, moving photogram person, and our good friend, Irena Musmechi. Scholastic sanctuary <laughs> into our home. <laughs> it feels very welcoming in here. Very mm. scholastic and very. That's what we're going for. Saintly. <laughs> Excellent. Um, now, listeners to our first episode may remember that I mentioned that His Dark Materials has been adapted before as a play. And that play, Irena, began your relationship with Lyra's world. Indeed, uh, it did. I. Um, I was uh, studying at RADA at the time to become uh, a dramaturg and a theatre director. And uh, I was working on my MA dissertation, which was about adapting children's literature for the stage. And I was working on completely different texts. And I was writing an adaptation of Italo Calvino's trilogy, Our Ancestors. And uh, my supervisor um, suggested that perhaps... I really ought to go and see what the National Theatre was doing about adapting this massive trilogy of books called His Dark Materials, which I had never heard about and wasn't so keen on because I'm not a big fan of fantasy. I tend not to like uh, books or stories that happen in their own worlds and have their own maps and characters give names to their stories and stuff. And this one had demons and I was like, oh, God, really? And... um <laughs> That was, yeah, I, I feel yeah. that. <laughs> I was the same about Game of Thrones and then I just oh, ended no, I up completely sucked into yeah. it. What's going on? Uh, how you mellow with age. Uh, but at the time I was a young, scrappy, uh, wannabe theatre director and uh, I um, got myself tickets to this show that was happening. It was a Christmas show. I think it was 2004 or 2003 perhaps. And um, at the same time I started reading the books and I remember... I was very non-committal about this. I got the tickets. It was really expensive. I bought the first book, uh, The Golden Compass or um, New Orleans It sounds Orleans. like you're being very academic about it as well. Yeah. I'm just doing the juiceful thing, yeah, get yeah, the ticket, get know, the book, read fine, it. if I have to. Yeah. So I read Northern Lights and I thought, oh, actually, maybe someone's <laughs> right. This is pretty good. So I bought The Subtle Knife, still not totally committed. I finished The Subtle Knife uh, at 9 p.m. on a Saturday night. Uh, in November, it was pouring and I got myself out to the 24 hours bookshop that was on Tottenham Court Road to buy the Amber Spyglass because I couldn't possibly leave it. And then I was completely hooked. Uh, I went to see the show. I thought this was a really incredible feat of adaptation, actually. It was a proper work of um, taking a story and changing it for a different media, but absolutely p- preserving its uh, its core. Uh, and it worked a treat. Um so yeah, that's, that's how I got into it. It's, it's probably a trilogy that I can't do without now. I have read it 
probably four times total from beginning to end. I've read the book of dust. I have read it aloud to my husband when we met. I am planning on reading it to my children who are currently 12 months old. Uh, so they haven't quite got into this yet, but they already know, uh, that they have demons and what their demons look like. And we're very familiar with all this kind of <laughs> international zoo that's happening in our house at the moment. So yeah, I, I can call myself a super fan, I guess. And I'm really curious to talk to you particularly about that word adaptation, because if we are to believe that this series will take three series to cover three books, uh, roughly that is about 24 hours to tell the story. And how long was the play? The play was an entire day. It started uh, with a matinee at about 12, I think, and it ended at 10 p.m., uh, 10.30, you know, in time for the last train kind of thing. It was it was divided into two plays, so they adapted the three books into two plays. Um, same as in is in the, the show, there was a lot of uh, world building that needed to be done. It was done very rapidly, and obviously in theatre, the willing suspension of disbelief is a much easier thing to uh, to gain from a willing paying audience. Uh, but uh, you have great difficulties. You have no special effects to show things like changing demons, you know, to change shape, uh, flying, uh, all kinds of exciting things that are going to happen from next week onwards. Yes. Uh, what's amazing <laughs> um, that is that people might be watching this series and already thinking, gosh, wow. that would be hard to put into a play. Yeah. Just wait. <laughs> like there is some yeah. stuff in book three that was purposely written so that it couldn't be like actually brought yeah. into reality. But I'm I'm sort of <laughs> presuming that for the stage, it leans more into a sort of symbolic way of um, depicting the demons. Um, not quite. They were puppets. Yeah. They were uh, animated and, and uh, they became an integral part of the actors who were playing these characters and they were actors playing mm -hmm. the demons. Um, the, the cast list, I now go back to it with, you know, a skip in my heart because I, I certainly did not pay special attention at the time. But I can see here that demons, uh, a demon called Kaiser was played by a certain Ben Wishaw. Uh, <laughs> Who's he? <laughs> Who is he? Uh, Roger Parslow was played by Russell Tovey. Uh, and then, of course, you had uh, people like Timothy Dalton playing Lord Asriel. And um, actually, my my... Probably my favorite and most memorable performance was Samuel Barnett uh, playing Pantalaimon. And I recently had an exchange with uh, Sam Barnett on Twitter and I said to him, the weirdest thing for me is that Pantalaimon sounds like you. And so anyone else who's going to voice that character or be that character just isn't They're Pantalaimon for me, yeah. uh, which is very sweet. Yeah, Rene, you and I are humongous Paddington fans as well. Yes. So now I thinking know. that I missed Ben Wishaw. In an adaptation of this is making my heart break even more. And there's going to be the Book of Dust on stage as well. Um, that's just been announced for the Bridge Theatre next year. Uh, it's La Belle Sauvage, which is the first book. Hopefully they get through all of them and, and hopefully we can do another 12-hour marathon of that. How? Just the logistics of that? Well, there must have been many intervals. There were, uh, I, I seem to recall, an interval in each part. So two intervals overall and a break in between the two plays. I would have had but to have this is very, and Yeah, but it's doable. You know, there's yeah. theatre goers are particularly keen on marathons like that's that. True. There's a special energy that's created because you're watching live performance work 
for such a long time and such yeah. a sustained time. And I think actors love it mm-hmm. because it's exhausting, but it does give them a chance to really experience the journey of a character. So the, during the week, they alternated the plays. They did part one, part two, part one, part two. And then weekends, they did the marathons. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit like when you're watching the Henry ads. So you watch Henry whatever, <laughs> Henry the Fourth. That's <laughs> <laughs> so where you start with Richard the Second, and then Henry the Fourth, one and two, and then Henry the Fifth. And the other three Henrys in whatever order they are assorted. Um, so I guess theatre viewers are accustomed to this kind They're of... They're tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tough cookies. just give it to me globe style. I want to be standing there <laughs> standing. for 12 hours. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, but we must move on from the play to the TV show and on to episode three of His Dark Materials, The Spies. So last week, our final moment saw Lyra getting kidnapped by what looked like the Gobless, and we saw her leaving Mrs. Coulter's apartment. She's broken up with her. She's left her very angry, brokenhearted. Of course, she's such a nice lady. Um, <laughs> and we got to meet the Egyptians, and we got to establish more of that relationship between humans and demons. And we also saw a portal into our world and a Mr. Lord Boreal traveling between them. I'm just going to quickly go over what happens in this episode and we'll delve right into that. But the key points that the spies hits are seeing that Lyra was in fact kidnapped by the gobblers, but is saved by the Egyptians. And they have, of course, been trying to save their kids that have been kept being kidnapped, including Billy Costa. We know that Roger, Lyra's friend, has been kidnapped by them as well. And luckily, they track one of these vans that has kidnapped Lyra and they bring her back to their boats. And we see a meeting of all the Egyptians, which is called a roping. Um, She's brought there for protection. We learn a bit more about her family tree, bumping into Lord Boreal. Uh, He's been traveling between worlds again. He's been very busy. Yeah. um, And where we learn of an explorer from our world who made the journey into theirs. And Mrs. Coulter has set out spies to find Lyra. Uh, She's also faced with Egyptian home invasion. And then the episode ends with the prospect of heading north. So there's a lot that happened in this one. But it starts back where it all began, back in Oxford, where we see Mrs. Coulter raiding the place in search of, as she says, anything heretical or illegal. (laughs) And this is a great... Well, another great entry to prove why Ruth Wilson is so good as this character. She's just tyrannical in that moment. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wrote down on my notes, Mrs. Coulter's power, Nazi-ish. I mean, very. Oh my God, that that entire, you know, coming in with gloves and yeah, flickering through books and chucking on the floor. It felt very Schindler's List. It very. was that kind of getting into the ghetto and destroying everything that's precious. But I definitely think hallowed. perhaps it's the beginning of... I hope Mrs. Coulter's unravelling. But I think this entry of her into the master's chamber gets into a key idea that's at the centre of this book, the next book, the next four books after that. And this is the relationship that education has within church and state. The master of Jordan, he says to Mrs. Coulter, you don't believe original thinking needs protecting? And particularly in The Secret Commonwealth, the book that's just come out, that idea is incredibly important to Pullman and these stories. 
It's very important. And Mrs. Coulter says something quite crass, actually, to him. He says, why do you think scholarship needs protecting? Scholarship was so intelligent, it would find a way not to be discovered. But the point of scholarship is not to be obscure and, and hidden. The point of scholarship and knowledge is to be shared mm-hmm. and to become uh, good for the universe, really, in, in this context. So the Master of Jordan College is preserving knowledge that is important, whether it's science or whether it's something beyond science. Um, she, of course, has a very practical approach to all of this. Um, and the General Oblation Board has a very practical approach to all of this. It wants to ensure that this doesn't get spread and that knowledge is destroyed in mm. certain ways or controlled in other ways, uh, which is the, the kind of crucial uh, idea that's happening there. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Clark Peters because I think he's doing a fantastic job in what's actually quite a small role, mm. mm-hmm. but he's so memorable. I love his demon, his raven, and I think he's a brilliant actor. I've I've always loved him. He was in Treme playing Big Chief Albert Lambrou, who is really another character who kind of embodies a knowledge mm-hmm. and a history and a tradition and resists against the invasion of the modern and the mm-hmm. destruction of the crass. Uh, and he's fantastic in this. I'm loving him. And I think this is a great trick of the TV show of developing the importance of Oxford. As I mentioned in last week's episode, the story in Northern Lights really follows Lyra as it happens. And this has the ability to bounce around. And the fact that we go back to Oxford, I felt was really valuable because it's it's so important to her as a character and it needs to be important for us. Because it feels to me to be a sort of place of groundedness, if that's a word. Mm. And I was, I mean, as someone who hasn't read the books, I was sort of worried to leave it behind. Yeah. So I, I think it feels like they're going to keep returning back to Oxford. Yeah, I think they really should. And by developing that character of the master, you're again extending that idea of homesickness Mm -hmm. that you want. It's not just the place, it's the people. And yeah, we don't know much about the master. And now Clark Peters in that role, he's giving us a bit more than maybe we got out of that character in the books. Um, Plus Mrs. Coulter's pronunciation of a lethiometer is one very useful yeah yes. um, she's definitely studied ancient greek at some point so i so think what, uh, we what does be it calling her bluff so what does it what does it mean so the word aletheia in ancient greek means um not it means truth mm-hmm. so an alethiometer is a uh, something that measures or tells the truth wow. yeah and we could pick apart all of these names as we go along because all of them have got a root somewhere interestingly Pullman says that Lyra was always just Lyra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can go through all these other names um, and they've all got their roots mm-hmm. somewhere. Have uh, we got into Lyra's surname yet? Do we know, do, do people who have not read the books know what, what her surname is? It's been said. It's yeah. said. It's Belacqua. Because I, I wondered whether that was a sort of, I don't know, a, you know, in Game of Thrones where a child is orphaned. Mm. They're oh, just like they're just named snow. they're just named after the area. Yeah, she's definitely not called Azrael. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Lyra <laughs> Azrael. But it's yeah. quite a particular name. It must have a yes. an mm. importance. And we will get into that because um, I think quite often they refer to her characters call her by her full name. Yeah, um, and Lyra's name will in fact become incredibly important yeah. as the series goes on as well. Um, And Lyra in this episode, she's with the Egyptians, she's been saved by them, and she gets a lot more filling in of her own personal history. Part of a lot of that comes between John Farr, 
Father Coram and Mark Hoster, who are the key Egyptian players in this story in relation to Lyra. Um, John Farr is brilliant, played by Lucian Mismati, who people may recognise as Salador San in Game of Thrones. Irene, you know him from the stage. Yes, he uh, he played an amazing uh, Salieri uh, in Amadeus at the National Theatre recently, about two or three years ago. Uh, he's a fantastic performance performer, very muscular. I like him a lot. And I, I, this is one of those places where I had someone completely different in mind for, um, for John Farr, because in my mind, John Farr has always been Mark Rylance. And then Mark Rylance played, um, uh, Johnny Rooster Byron in Jerusalem. And I said, this is it. This is John Farr. That's it. That's the character. And to have someone else in that role was a bit disruptive, but. He was brilliant. I bought into him straight away. So commanding, really charismatic. Loved him. Mm. And we learned that the Egyptians have known Lyra for not just a few days since saving her. In fact, they've known her since she was a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, She's just bombarded from every side with information about herself. She is. But in that yeah. scene, she also flips it. Uh, they, You know, she's sitting in front of these two elders of of a tribe she doesn't really know although they know a lot about mm-hmm. her and she reveals that she has knowledge that they don't know she has yes. by saying well is it because lord azrael was my father and the way they look at each other is oh Uh-oh. what else does she know <laughs> yeah yeah th- this is something Lyra's so good at if yes. you remember in episode two she played the same kind of trick with mrs coulter where she said is it about dust <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly that's what makes her so attractive as a character, though, that she can really... She's somebody who can talk mm-hmm. <laughs> and can talk very persuasively. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, let's fill in that backstory. Uh, so we actually learn, shocker, that Mrs. Coulter is Lyra's mother. And now, th- this is something that I guessed last week and mm. I said to you, Jake, and you just lied <laughs> outright. And you said, no, of course not. That would be stupid. <laughs> It was a bit of a giveaway when she threw that line, you know, he was a terrible father. Exactly. (laughs) He was an awful husband as well, (laughs) or a partner or something. And, you know, dressing her up as though she's a mini-me and, yeah, yeah, that, the obsession that she has over her, Mm. it has to be maternal. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I have been consistently surprised through these three episodes about when things have been revealed. Uh, we learn about Asriel being a father, Mrs. Coulter being a mother. The portal to another world is yeah. brought forward incredibly mm-hmm. far. Irena, how do you feel about these early reveals? I think it's very smart because, as we were saying earlier, they've got so much ground to cover in this in this eight-part first series. Um, I think it's been really clever, the fact that they've started introducing things that come into way, way later into the trilogy for anybody who reads the books. It's very economical. Um, it also allows for these kind of reveals that took a long time to build up in the book to happen straight away so that we can make ground mm-hmm. for the bigger things that are to come. And I think the the actors are also really very good at kind of balancing the journey and not giving away everything straight away from the off. Um, so I think it's very well managed and I'm yeah. really enjoying the writing in this. And I, I just think if you're alluding to a twist or you're going to push something in that direction and draw it out like that, in a way that's getting in the way of yeah. true character relationships because something's they, always being mm, hidden. Yeah. Whereas now that these things have been revealed, we can actually get into the heart of those relationships. And by bringing the doorway to another world forward, that is at the start of The Subtle Knife, mm-hmm. the second yeah. book. 
which when you're reading it is really jarring. And I think this natural dropping in of it, not to like episode two, it feels like it's a, a normal part of this world if you are not a reader of it. Mm-hmm. So by the time that these will, as people might expect, have a bigger role to play, it's not going to seem completely alien. And to me, it feels as though all these sort of large parts of the puzzle of this world and of Lyra's life, they're little sort of crumbs. So it's leading both Lyra and the audience sort of towards something that is going to be bigger Gosh, the, than the, these reveals. Gosh, the scale of where this story goes is remarkable. It's huge. Yeah. And I, I also, it's one of my pet peeves when a particular TV show draws out the reveals hmm. and you know you're pretty much shouting at the screen and everyone knows that this is going to happen. Yeah. So it's good that it's just going straight in. It's it's done with a lot of attention to detail as well. So everybody who is aware of what's going on and, why, and what's being introduced, they'll pick up on so many little things. Like, for example, I couldn't check, but I can swear that the tree <laughs> that's right by the portal is a hornbeam. Mm. So if it's this kind of thing, which means, you know, you're seeing a beautiful big tree. Mm-hmm. I am seeing something that will have great significance afterwards yeah. and think. Well, oh, I've definitely noticed that, that tree. I've noticed yeah. that. It's also a very strange, it almost seems like the area they, where he comes out of the portal from, mm. it's, you know, when, when you're a child, you p- paint something on a piece of paper mm. and then you close it yeah. and then you open it again and it's perfectly symmetrical. Like Rorschach. Yeah. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> that, a kind that's of, for a crossover podcast. Yes. <laughs> there's a kind of almost fish eye-ness mm. yes. to that area. Yeah. It's such a tough thing to do because the description of it in the book is a, is another one of those things that you almost can't imagine what it yeah. would actually be like. Yes, And it could easily, in an adaptation, end up a little bit being John Malkovich. Like it's <laughs> some kind of thing off a motorway yeah. in the New Jersey Turnpike. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah it's not actually that glamorous, no. the location in the text. And I quite like this one. Yeah. Um, I will just do a quick recap of... Uh, the backstory for Lyra's mother and her father, uh, because I think that is something that the show doesn't quite nail. I, like you it's would a ha- lot of information yeah. very fast, and it is actually it is quite important, and we're just given all of it at once, and it's a lot. Um, and so, if you have just watched the show, hopefully this does help. Um, so she learns about the relationship uh, from Mark Costa. And it's revealed that Mark Austin protected Lyra as a baby because there was so much drama with her parents. Those two. There is so much drama. As we go on. Gosh. Um, (laughs) So Mrs. Coulter was married to a man named Edward Coulter, but she had an affair with James McAvoy. Who can blame her? (laughs) Uh, And Edward attacked the baby Lyra, who was born from this affair with Lord Asriel. Did he actually attack the baby mm-hmm. or did she just did he just go he just went for her. Okay. And in this moment Asriel killed him. He was stripped of all of his wealth and possessions and she was placed in a convent. Now, Asriel being a man of academia rather than religion detested this fact and if we travel back to the start of episode 1 during the great flood he drops her at Jordan College. So that was all of that. Absolute scenes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's chaotic. Uh, the absolute state of it. Yeah. Honestly, though. They need to get on Jeremy two, Kyle. Yeah. yeah. They, just need to, they just need to have a proper conversation. Mm-hmm. It's all about communication, you know. Exactly. That's what they're missing. Um, so that's what's happening with the Egyptians. And we, again, we 
get a bit more about this demon-human relationship and particularly from Father Corum, James Cosmo, who's doing really great work in this episode. And he delivers a really great line that I think gets into a bit more of the the grey areas that that relationship can live in, that it's not just this lovely pally extension of a pet's relationship. It can be more frustrating than that. I think that was one of my favourite parts of this episode because it's one of those conversations that could have been a big explainer, mm-hmm. like, this is how it works. Mm-hmm. But actually, it was so genuine between the two characters, especially having had the reveal that he's known her since she was a baby. What Lyra says, is she doesn't want her demon to settle. She's enjoying this whole uh, notion that she can be anything she wants to be and this is what Mark Costa says to her you go off you do your thing you'll be whoever you want to be Mark Costa also happens to know quite a bit about Lyra and Mm -hmm. we know from the opening credits that something is up with Lyra that there is more than we can tell really at this stage about her so this big debate about who are you going to be? Are you going to be your own person or are you going to be someone for whose, you know, whose path has been decided by somebody else? Uh, is really very important and it's so essential to the relationship between the human and demon. And what Father Coram says to her is that, first of all, it is necessary to grow up. Your demon will settle and you will become a person who has specific characteristics and you may not like them or you may not think that that's really you. But it is you. Mm. So you need to embrace it. Or, as we've seen in the case of Mrs. Coulter, there's a very complex relationship between this human and the demon. And this is something that I think Philip Pullman is exploring right now in the new uh, trilogy that he's writing, particularly in um, The Secret, Secret Commonwealth. Uh, there's a lot in there about what happens when you and your demon are at odds. Um, and well, you can definitely feel that. With yeah, well, yeah. what Father Coram says... Some people might like to have a lion as a demon and they end up with a poodle, mm-hmm. which is a, which is directly lifted from the book. Yeah. That yeah. Line. And that does so much in just such a, in an easy, tight sentence. Because he, he sort of maps out my greatest sort of um, cynicism around mm. the idea of your demon. He says, you know, and it, it shows you what you're, who you're going to be in it is your soul. To me, it feels so limiting that by the time you become adolescent, you're only just starting the journey of, you know, self-discovery and whatever. And that to have that decided for you already. Yeah, well, in a way, it's quite, it's a cruel part of this Growing world. Up. Yeah. But it's, um, I was talking to Jake about this quite a few months ago and saying, now that I have the experience of raising children and mm-hmm. two children in particular, I have twins who are just, uh, just over one now. Um, it is to me such an incredibly true concept and idea that a baby or a young person's demon should change they change all the time Mm -hmm. their mood or their vision can change you know from one minute to the next and you go from tiger to uh, a sparrow to a moth (laughs) to a lion to a crocodile to you know a sloth and all of this happens in you know very very rapidly but there are certain traits that are starting to become quite obvious and i think i don't think that the demon settling is is about that's a path that's decided for you. Mm-hmm. I think you mold that path through your youth and adolescence at the point at which you achieve maturity. Something calcifies, something becomes solid, something settles in a person. And I think beyond that, we don't change that much. So I think to me, it, it makes sense and it's very realistic. But what Father Coram also says as an older man, uh, he says, I wouldn't change a hair on my demon. I love her. Uh, but 
it doesn't mean that sometimes I don't dream things were different. Mm -hmm. And I think we've all had that experience. Yes. We've all been through things in life where we have acted in a certain way that is totally in character and berated ourselves or thought, why wasn't I braver? Mm. You know, my demon's a cat. Why isn't it a tiger well, right now? It's we, we didn't hear it on this episode. Maybe we will. Um, but one of my favorite little stories about demons is Father Coram, I think in Northern Lights, says to Lyra that there was, he'd once heard of a sailor whose demon was a dolphin. And that's why he was a sailor. Mm -hmm. Because he had to stay on a boat because it couldn't survive outside of the sea. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, it's just so important how strong that relationship is. Um, and I'm, I really am curious, particularly as these books go on, to see how, how this gets explored. Um, Whilst we're with Egyptians, I would just like to mention a, a little fun highlight of this was Mar Costa cooking with what looks like magical gunpowder. I have a lot of questions. Yeah, just is I that... don't. I don't have the answers. <laughs> is this, is this, is this a detail lifted from stuff. the book? It's uh, from Master Chef. As far as <laughs> I mean, um, I'm sure there's some. I mean, I've got level two food health and safety. <laughs> this is not included. Mm, yeah, you probably shouldn't be throwing sparks around like that, but it no, looks I mean, great, what, doesn't it? What purpose would that serve? Well, Egyptian cooking is really interesting. Like, um, one of my favorite passages in the Secret Commonwealth is this running joke about <laughs> yeah. the best way for Egyptians to cook eels. <laughs> and it gets different yeah. and, and grander each yeah. time. Um, yeah, I think it's just one of those uh, signifiers of the Egyptians having some kind of uh, magic. touch with magic yeah. or yeah. an awareness of things beyond simply putting a pan it, on the hob it's also a very pullman thing to just literally throw in something yes. like that you don't explain it it's just part of the world it and we're going is. to experience that a lot yeah. more as we go along um right we must bounce to another world quickly uh over to lord boreal he has been coming over to our world again and his cargo clamped <laughs> Yes, so oh. funny. He had just he had two great little jokes like that of <laughs> just seeing this guy in our world is just funny. Like yeah. Yeah, this guy gets his car car clamp, doesn't know what to do, and also seeing Lord Boreal eat chips. Very <laughs> strange. <laughs> very very good stuff. Um, but this this is quietly like this side quest of the show is giving us so much information. Mm -hmm. It's already given us the biggest reveal that we can travel between worlds. And now we learn about Stanislas Grumman. I think, again, this is another bit that the show perhaps isn't explaining that well. Like with. I mean, because um, I've watched the episode twice now and I still don't quite have a mm. grasp of who that character is. Yeah, these little dumps of dialogue, like with um, <laughs> Lyra's parentage, <laughs> um, are a bit iffy. Um, so Stanislas Grumman, if you take, if you go back to episode one, was the head in the ice that Lord Asriel brought to Oxford. And that's what Lord Asriel said. Or was he? Um, so Stanislas Grumman here is revealed to have traveled from our world. So he started here to their world. I'll call it Lyra's world. To Lyra's world 13 years ago. And he has a demon? Well... So this man was called Colonel John Parry. He left behind a wife. So was he Stanislas... Stanislas Grumman. <laughs> Stanislas Grumman. Is, that the, is they the same people? Well, we're going to find this out along the show, aren't we, Louis? And the biggest revelation is... 
sexy priest. <laughs> he's so just all over. He's in all the worlds. He's a priest and yeah. an officer <laughs> and a gentleman. So we see Andrew Scott staring back at us from the from the computer screen. Is that the most excited you've been? Yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, after those amazing silk pajamas that Mrs. Coulter wears. Okay, all right. I think you seeing Andrew Scott is parallel to me seeing the portal into the other world in terms of shock well one we watched we watched this episode together for the first time and didn't i as soon as we saw andrew scott i turned to you and i said yeah okay i'm 100 percent involved yeah. <laughs> into this yeah um so to fill in a bit more on john parry um he exited our world uh left behind a wife who has her struggles with mental health it's revealed and a child and Yes, as you mentioned, Louis, he seems to have a demon. Now, I don't know, like, if we're looking around this room at other people in our world, I'm not seeing any demons here. No, mine's parked outside. Yeah. Hopefully not clamped. <laughs> um, so that's that's a, a riddle for another day, but I'm sure people will be very curious about that one. Um, and it, is it a hawk? It's an osprey. Mm. Oh, some, yeah. Some yeah. sort of bird. There's actually a tiny bit of a giveaway there when the the nerd guy <laughs> who is employed by Lord Boreal to give him information, who is not a character in the books, um, says, maybe you acquire a demon when you cross. Mm-hmm. Enter Snig. <laughs> and something for the future to discuss. Is it just me who thinks it's very strange that the snake just lives within his sleeve i am so scared of snakes and i was really happy of a snake being just hidden well, away i think this is a, a little convenience for the tv show that he specifically yeah. said to this guy we don't feel the need to show our demons all the time and that's maybe helping out the cgi artists yes. <laughs> but also that joke is getting old now that's mm. the second time the snake just yeah. Slithers from within his cuffling. It does sleeve. slither quite well, though. Could really do without it, though, to be yeah. honest. I'm just, just leave him at home, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, it was nice to see uh, a photo of his son as well. Um, and it's interesting that both he, John Parry, and his son have both been introduced the previous episode via a photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the rest of that storyline is revealed. I should say photograms, shouldn't I? Because that is the correct term in Lyra's world. We will go back to now to one of your favourite locations, Louis. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Coulter's apartment. Yes. Uh, we see her walking along the edge of it. Uh, I wasn't so fond of this moment. Uh, I thought that was a bit a bit whimsical for her. I, I think she's very much on the straight and narrow. Can we talk a little bit about the distance between Mrs. C and her demon? Mm. They're always far apart yep yeah it's unsettling isn't it yeah i mean in that scene the demon is behind a window yep and there's something very it makes me feel very uneasy i think then it's doing exactly the job that it should be exactly but and there is some sort of beef between mrs Coulter yes. and her demon well as as um father quorum says if you and your demon don't get along it means that there is some discontent within you oh, yeah. there's something going on oh, for sure. um I, it's kind of one of the things that I'm still a bit undecided about, Mrs. Coulter, whether I don't know if she is completely evil-minded or she's just incredibly conflicted and misguided. Mm-hmm. And in the books, I was a lot more on the fence. Here, I dislike her. She's profoundly. definitely evil. She's yes. the baddie. Yes, she is the baddie. But 
what is her motivation? Why is she doing what she does? Mm. And I think that is the key to the separation and division and the mm-hmm. discontent between her and her yeah. team. I think I maybe picked up on a little Easter egg. Mm. Is, is it Father Corum who says, I'm still trying to work out why Mrs. Corta's demon is a monkey. Mm. Mm. And um, my mom at the moment is being a very good mother and she's following along and she's never read the books either and it was never part of my childhood. And she um, sent me some facts about the golden monkey. Well, it's a snub-nosed monkey. Oh, it's a mo- snub-nosed, snub-nosed yeah. monkey okay, for the sorry. show. And um, apparently they, they live furthest north. Mm. Uh-huh. That might be helpful. Is it? Mm. Mm. And the reason it's got no nose? Oh, because it, it's to do with um, avoiding frostbite. There you Could go. Could be helpful. Who and what knows? what is Asriel's demon? A snow leopard. Ah. Uh-huh. A perfect match. Those two are made for each other. Yeah. Um, what, so going back to Mrs. C's apartment and talking about her being evil. We saw her last <laughs> saw her last week using her demon to attack lovely oh, Pantalaimon. And we've got a bit more evil antics from her involving demons that's very hard to watch. Um, and as a whenever a moment like this happens it's a shocking reminder this is a, an 8pm Sunday show that a lot of kids will be watching um, but we have Benjamin and Tony Costa uh, they've gone from the, the roping of the Egyptians uh, to Miss Coulter's apartment to try and steal the plans for the station and they're, um, they're told you mustn't go to Mrs. Coulter's apartment what do they do? Boys will be boys eh? <laughs> um, they, they go and we witness the first demon death and how oh, that no, we appears. saw the one second yeah, yeah. We oh, saw yeah. the butterfly but, the butterfly, I, but the butterfly the yeah, yeah yeah the butterfly is in boreal's hand yeah. whereas here um benjamin going out like a real hero mm-hmm. um a martyr he, for the cause yeah mm-hmm. so he has been caught his demon is in the paws of the golden monkey and rather than surrender to Mrs. Coulter and the Gobbler's Course, he throws himself down an elevator shaft. And we know that he hits the bottom and dies because in the Golden Monkey's paws, his demon just disappears. And you see the monkey pour at this, one might say dust, dust. that suddenly appears <laughs> yeah. in the air. Um, and it is totally shocking, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, but also really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's, but so shocking. I was completely flabbergasted. I really have to say this one, it was worse than the butterfly. Mm. It just terrified me and it made me think I'm completely unprepared for what's going to come. Mm. Um, and then so that was, yeah. My favorite Mrs. Coulter moment is that animalistic, not even a howl, wasn't a scream. It was a mm. guttural monkey-like yeah. sound that comes from within her. Yeah. Now, um, this sequence with Mrs. Calder ends with Lord Boreal entering the apartment and they sit down next to each other on a sofa. And I know they're evil, but they're so they're cool. So- <laughs> <laughs> they are so but cool. They are so but the cool. evil people are always the coolest. Oh, they she always looked, are. She's just like leant over one side of it, just looking effortless. And I think it feels like the mo- a really stylized shot. It's mm-hmm. been just set up to look amazing and intimidating and cool. And I think that comes from the director, Dawn Shadforth. So she's taken over from Tom Hooper, who did the first two episodes. Um, and I think other than there's actually quite a lot of d- drone shots in this one, mm-hmm. um, 
there are a few more of these like specifically heightened moments that I think maybe come from her work on music videos. Um, and she hasn't done so much film TV stuff, but she did direct the video of Can't Get You Out of My Head by Kylie. Oh, did she? One of wow. the best like, music videos ever. In Amazing. terms of 21st Iconic. century music videos. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. What a video. We do also encounter a bit of mi5 gadgetry mm-hmm. um like we we mentioned ben wishaw already perhaps his cue could be handing over some spy flies to mrs coulter um these are little tracking devices that she leave she lets smell lyra's old dress so that it can fly out and, and they, track they're her. illegal yes they are illegal um and they allow for an invasion on the egyptian boats uh from Gobblers, police, magisterium people. I don't know, but again, it looks very much like this kind of Nazi film aesthetic. It felt such an Anne Frank moment. Mm. A girl hiding <laughs> yes. somewhere. And I was thinking this intrusion. This, yeah. yeah, so that was a bit... I have to hide her behind, underneath the sink, behind yeah. stuff. A yeah. bit cheap, perhaps, uh-huh. but yeah, effective. I, the the spy flies are a weird one, because even when I read Northern Lights, I find it so jarring. Like mm-hmm. It's just a yeah. piece of technology that doesn't quite sit right for me in that world, and I'm not sure why. I've never been able to pinpoint it. The only thing of interest for me in the spy flies is that comment that they are... So they are illegal, and they've been outlawed by the magisterium, because actually they are a magical device, not just a technological mm. one. They are a creature uh, for whom a, a bad spell has been been cast into their hearts they're trapped souls and they, they are trapped souls says, and yeah. it's um it's something that in the amber spyglass you can sort of go back and look look back onto this and relate to in this idea of the trapped soul or something distressing something terrible has happened to somebody who needs to be liberated and acts in an evil nasty way because of reasons um so there we go. I suppose it's just one of those devices. They needed a way for... Maybe it's not... Maybe I lose that depth on it because they're called spy flights. Yeah. That's <laughs> not the, the most name attractive. Is silly. Like we, yeah, we the mentioned, name we mentioned is how good silly. Pullman is at coming up with names <laughs> for characters. Maybe not for little robot creatures. As well as jumping down an elevator shaft and his demon disappearing. Benjamin is really key to this plot for another reason. And that is because Lyra reads the alethiometer, the truth-telling device, and it tells her that he is dead mm-hmm. before the Egyptians know about it. And I, frankly, am surprised that they have been bold enough to go basically three hours of this series without showing the alethiometer being read. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a very nice bit in I think the previous episode where they show the alethiometer reacting to something, uh, and it's a moment when Lyra is not trying to do anything. Oh yes, with it, I noticed it, which is really crucial to the whole mm-hmm. alethiometer thing. I um, actually this was also a, a favorite part of, of mine in this episode. Um, because it's really such a defining moment now for Lyra that she learns she can do this thing that she's told time and time again, no one can do. You can only do it if you have the knowledge. You can only do it if you have read the books, which are kept in Jordan College, where, of course, she grew up. Um, what is it? How is she doing it? Um, that is a great mystery. But she does it and she describes it as this moment when her mind goes blank and she starts just by instinct, trying to think about what she's been told. You know, you place the the dials onto the the figures and the symbols. Think about what 
can signify what. And there are so many ways of reading it. And it doesn't move for just anybody. And suddenly it starts moving in her hands and there's something flowing through her. And it's that moment of, okay, she's really special. Mm-hmm. And I, I, this was really for me the moment when I embraced Lyra. I, I've, I'm now with her. I love her. I want to know what's going to happen with her. Um, we can talk about the alithiometer forever. I think it's so interesting as a device. It's been designed beautifully for this show. Uh, I think it's a fantastic prop. It's also exactly as I imagined it, which is so rare when you get another. That's interesting of because you, Jake, you said, "Oh, this isn't how it should be." Well, yeah, I, uh, I imagine it as as rounder and bulkier, mm. um, but I think. It makes sense that it's this more slender thing Compact. because she needs to sneak it around. Yes. And if she is going to slip it uh, into, into her white yeah, purse, <laughs> yeah, then it absolutely makes sense to be this this little yeah. gold. It almost looks like a compact mirror. Yeah, it's small, compact, uh, easily stolen, mm. uh, easily transported. You could almost not have it on you. And I think it just, it's a beautiful piece of design. It's also one of those concepts for me, same as the demons, which really shows the genius of Philip Pullman. Mm-hmm. He is working with so many layers of different traditions. So this whole notion of being able to read the truth at the same time, influencing the events that are happening and influencing the reading is so linked with so many different um, mystical traditions like the I Ching uh, or even the tarot cards reading, which is something that the alithiometer really mm-hmm. reminds me of, yes. these figures yeah, and sure. these symbols. And in the way uh, when you're having your tarot cards read, which is something that a lot of Egyptians may be into doing, mm-hmm. you're influencing uh, what cards you pick not simply by choosing them, but by being connected to some kind of cosmic force, mm-hmm. mm. which then affects the reading itself and your present and your future. So it's really a fantastically defining moment for me uh, in the series. And it's I think really at this point, I bought into it. Yeah. I'm now on board. I think I, I love it and I will continue to watch it. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't on board already, this episode ends with us heading north and we know that next week we are going to find an armoured bear and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Oh, God. What more could you need? So exciting. Literally the two things that I'm missing from my life. <laughs> <laughs> and also, of course, there was a mention of some witches as well. Yes, yeah. the witches. And like that, like that gunpowder, it's just this little mention of it. We're going to get there, but we haven't got there just yet. Um, but lots of exciting stuff to come up next week looks maybe our first one that's going to be action heavy mm-hmm. i'm not sure i think um, that's what people have maybe been struggling with so far as there's been a lot of the information that we're fed that we're fed is through exposition rather than action yeah i think that's very true of this episode in mm-hmm. particular yeah there's um, been a lot of plot but a lot of kind of moving forward just lyra's being told these things chunks. rather than she's going out and finding them out for herself yeah all right so that was episode three, The Spies. Now, the episode might have ended, but now it's time to go deep and talk about our inner demons. Now, Louis, mm-hmm. across this series, we're on an adventure, trying to pin down what your demon is. So far, we've had uh, Taylor Swift cats. <laughs> we've had... What was what was last week? Homing pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we're going to get there. We will figure it out. Uh, and so. in fact, this week I've I've got a uh, I've got a game to help us figure it out. <laughs> um, so, 
uh, we've got a birth month, favorite food, and surname initial to help oh, wow. solve it. Okay. Uh, with some adjectives and some animals. Mm-hmm. So, which month were you born? February. Okay. And out of these foods, what would be your favorite? Pizza, burgers, nuggets, pasta, <laughs> sushi, curry, pho, pies, salad, chips, ramen, chocolate. You know which one. Do I? Yeah. Would it be pasta? Yes. All right. And your surname initial? M. All right. So, on that basis, you are a quick, <laughs> jolly <laughs> raven. Oh, nice. I'm nice quite one. blonde for a raven, though, aren't I? But maybe you could be friends with the master. Because his, his raven doesn't look that quick or jolly. So you could <laughs> <Okay>. be friends. <laughs> Definitely not jolly. The thing is, though... In my in reality, I'm probably quite slow and downbeat. Okay, like a quick jolly slice. <laughs> yes. No, but I did the I did the BBC um, quiz. What what did I come up as? I can't remember. Some sort of strange lizard. <laughs> oh really? Uh, what was it? A word like snink or something? S- yeah. A What's black that? snink. I have no idea. I think you'd be a red panda. Oh, why? It's- I don't know. You've got something of panda small... No, not like red pandas are small pandas, a bit like raccoons. Okay. They're very cute and mm. fast and okay. smart and funny. And okay. Cute. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm game. I like okay. this. All right. Um, Arena? Well, I have been thinking about this very question for so many years <laughs> and I've had so many discussions with people and a general agreement amongst my friends is that Maybe my demon would be a bird, but I really don't feel very bird-like. So I have decided that I, I have actually thought for a long time that my demon would settle as a mountain goat, specifically an alpine ibex. I love um, mountain goats. They are brilliant creatures. Yeah. Um, they have amazing horns, which are giant and very elegant, which is not <laughs> something I am. Um, but, you know, your demon is not necessarily a reflection of you, but it could also be a compliment. Um and crucially, they, they are creatures who live in herds. They live in groups and the, the herd is really important to them. And they are very much linked to families and large, uh, sort of company and living in company. And they live in mountains. They're also, uh, very smart. Also something I'm not. Uh, but you're very smart. I mean, we put you on as our academic. I think it's fair to say that you're smart. <laughs> so there you go. But definitely smarter than they look and gracious, more grace, graceful than they look. And very stubborn, which mm. is something I but can. They're not those to. goats that faint. No, no, <laughs> these are, fainting these are, I'm not a fainting goat. Oh, these good. are goats who climb and yeah. build stuff and, and wear those lovely bells. Yeah, yeah. and smash their heads yeah. on things. They, they, are, they can be wild as well. But so you're the bell. You're, you know, you're we the can one really... who came up with Jake's demon. Yeah, you instantly. You, yeah, yeah. And I settled on that immediately. Yeah, I'm look, the red squirrel. You're completely a red squirrel. Yeah, I'm very happy about that. Too busy and very driven. Yeah. No, I said very smart, fast. Yes. You know, always thinking, always active, always planning That's things. That's so true. And always on the hunt for okay. a bit of food. Absolutely. Yeah. Nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Laborious. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um, so we must probably wrap up there. Uh, if, if, if people want to catch up with you on social media, you're on Twitter. I'm on at Byronic. Incidentally, my demon's name would be Byron. <laughs> and Louis, of course, people can catch you on Twitter at... Louisa Maycock. And I'm there as at Jake H. Cunningham. And of course, do follow for updates on competitions and lovely dark materials stuff that you can be winning courtesy of the guys at Penguin Random House. 
And that is about it. Thank you so much for listening as we continue our adventures into the world of his dark materials on Dustbusters. Dustbusters is produced by Jake Cunningham. That's me. Our music is by Dan Yakano, and the show is edited by Jamie Maisner.